This is An American Workplace, a podcast dedicated to re-watching and discussing NBC's beloved mockumentary series, The Office. My name is Katie White, and joining me as always is my good friend and co-host, Chad Hopkins. What's up, Chad? How are you? I'm doing all right. How are you, Katie? Pretty good. Looking forward to a little trip here uh, coming up over the next about two weeks. I get to go home to Texas, so I am looking forward to getting out of this freezing New York weather. That's awesome. Yeah, we're actually recording this episode a week plus in advance so that you can travel uh, unencumbered by podcasting equipment and the obligation <laughs> of having to do that. So I'm glad you're able to get away from the freezing temperatures in New York for at least a few days. Oh, it's just, it's really bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I am uh, not envious. We had like three days of the freezing weather and that was just about enough for me. I like the cold, but... Uh, I can only go freezing for so long. Yeah, we've got about uh, three more months of it, so <laughs> looking forward to it. <laughs> well, uh, uh, try out that Lin-Manuel Miranda tip. Magic chocolate shell on your hands. Tasty treat on the go. <laughs> <laughs> At least then you're uh, enjoying something about the cold, I guess. <laughs> yeah, something like that. <laughs> Let's head into our first episode for today, safety training. Safety training aired on April 12th, 2007 was directed by Harold Ramis and written by B.J. Novak. Thanks to an incident caused by Michael, in which Daryl broke his ankle, the office and warehouse have to go through mandatory safety training. They start off in the warehouse, where Daryl talks up the dangers of equipment such as the forklift and the baler. Back upstairs, Toby gives a safety talk on the dangers of carpal tunnel syndrome and staring at a computer screen for too long and dim light during the winter. As a result, Daryl calls Michael life a cushy, nerfy life and walks out, leaving Michael defensive and hurt. And he tries to come up with a way to one-up the warehouse safety presentation, leading to a showdown on the roof with a bouncy council waiting below. That's, uh, that's this episode. <laughs> it's one of my more memorable office episodes, I think. Um, Mostly because you don't get too many bouncy castles in the office. But. <laughs> right. I, I think this would definitely classify as one of the classic episodes of The Office. Just uh, Michael standing on a rooftop and yelling down, Dwight, you ignorant slut, is hard to forget. <laughs> one of my favorite lines from the series, definitely. <laughs> uh, well, let's just start off, I suppose, with Michael. Um, he knocked Daryl off of a ladder. Uh, kicked it out from under him, left Daryl literally hanging from a shelf just so that he could say, hey, Daryl, how's it hanging? And Daryl's the one telling the story, and it cuts to Michael in a talking head when it gets to that line specifically, and he is very <laughs> amused by it. Despite everything else, he still thinks that this joke where he knocks out the ladder from underneath Daryl is hysterical. And the The fact of the matter is, it broke Daryl's ankle, and it's because of him now that everybody's having to go through this pretty unnecessary for most people, for the common sense person. Uh, it's unnecessary for them, but Michael is not a common sense kind of guy. And he feels so entitled to operate all this machinery that he has no business operating and touching things he shouldn't be touching. He just feels like he has every right to do it. And when Daryl is leading the safety presentation... Um, he kind of gives Michael a pop quiz. <laughs> Should you touch this? <laughs> and Michael is like, I have and I can. And Daryl says, no, 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 but should you? And finally, Michael kind of breaks down and says, okay, okay, only on the rarest of occasions. <laughs> Daryl says, no, Michael, you're not getting it. You don't touch this. And he just feels so, yeah, in entitled, I think is the best word, to touch everything. He's devolved into being a kid. Like, yeah, really, full on yeah. kid mode. These are parents, Daryl and Lonnie, good old daddies, <laughs> like having to look down <laughs> on Michael and say, pay attention. These are the rules. Don't touch this. Don't touch that. Don't play around with this. He's a kid. And it, it's just ridiculous that the regional manager of this company is having to go through a safety training that is so focused on these heavy equipments that nobody should be touching unless you know you have the authority to do so. It's just, oh my goodness, Michael, <laughs> you're, you're again, taking things too far. We, we act like we're surprised every time. And in a way I am just because you'd think that somebody would wise up after a certain amount of time, but Michael just isn't there yet. And he's 
he, he's having a hard time believing that everyone in the warehouse is qualified, especially um, the only female warehouse worker named Madge. First of all, Michael Pudge? can't. I mean, Pudge or Patch, um, as he says on the roof, he cannot get her name correct. Um, he just, he ends up calling her, her. And uh, yeah, her is qualified, as Daryl says. Um, she can run the forklift. She can run the baler, but not Michael. And he is not okay with that. Yeah. So all through this presentation by Daryl, he's interrupting. He's not paying attention. He's focusing on other things that are going on. Then they get up to Toby's safety training. He's not very excited about that, but it pales in comparison to Daryl's, not because of Toby, but because it's just it's a different setting. It's a different situation. They deal with different problems. No, getting arms caught in a baler doesn't really compare to staring at a computer screen for too long, but they do pose their own various health and safety concerns. Um, but... Daryl and Lonnie start to make fun of Michael for it, and they start to sort of interrupt, and he says, hey, guys, I didn't interrupt you during your presentation. They say, yes, Michael, you did. You did. And it's just ridiculous that that one, Michael has this expectation of others when he won't follow it himself, but then how he reacts to Daryl sort of getting in his face and saying, you live a cushy, nerfy life. Uh, I mean, I could understand Michael getting a little bit upset, but to take it to the extreme he takes it to afterwards is just a little bit too far. Michael um, latches on to the one legitimately dangerous thing mentioned in the meeting, which is depression. And mostly, they really didn't even mention depression. What they mentioned was seasonal affective disorder from, you know, lack of sunlight because you're in an office all day. And Michael takes that and runs with it. And so he and Dwight decide that the best way to better their presentation is to use visual aids. And so they come up with this little depression demonstration, for lack of a better word. And they, um, they first try a trampoline. So Michael is going to go to the roof. He's going to put on this little skit about how hard life is, and he's going to fake his own suicide get to how messed up that is in a second yeah, but no um he decides that he's going to jump off the roof onto this trampoline and after testing it on some watermelons sees that that might not be the safest option dwight isn't so convinced but they decide to move on to a bouncy castle which i'll admit does seem like a slightly better choice but not <laughs> great still and michael's fully planning on going through with it it's funny that this sort of is kind of Pam's fault very indirectly. Like, I, I wouldn't ever levy this blame at Pam seriously. But Michael is complaining about how Daryl and Lonnie were making fun of him and making him feel bad about him living a cushy life. Living a cushy life. She said, well, you, they just had visual aid. They weren't necessarily better. They had, they had something to show. And so that plants the seed in Michael's head, and he does go and get the trampoline, and that doesn't work, so he gets the bouncy castle. And it's, ooh, for... I sort of wonder if he ever really would have jumped, but there is a moment when the skit sort of turns into almost like actual depression. He says, you know, my relationship with Jan isn't exactly what I want it to be. The sex isn't as good as it used to be. Um, and he's upset about how Daryl and Lonnie were talking to him. He doesn't want to feel bad like this. And yeah, it's still a far cry away from actual depression, but he does get to a place where he's pretty bummed out uh, beyond uh, what what Dwight was saying. And you actually wonder for a second, is Michael going to go through with this? Not necessarily with the intent to harm himself, but still to sort of somehow improve uh, himself in the, the eyes and the perspective of his workers. I don't know what his mindset is, but there really is a moment when you doubt uh, whether he won't jump. Yeah, and the office, because of course Dwight has called everyone out to the parking lot to watch this skit, um, the office takes notice that, oh, this has turned from a, you know, very poor taste, but a skit nonetheless, into something a little bit more. Um, and they need to convince Michael to not jump, and so... It kind of starts at first as, you know, hey, don't jump. And then when he starts talking about Jan and talking about what do I have to live for, 
Daryl actually has some trouble coming up with things for Michael to live for, which is a little <laughs> dark. Um, he says, will you have um, jam? And he's desperately looking around and <laughs> yeah. nobody's offering any help. And he finally comes up with Jan. He says, oh, the lovely, lovely Jan. And then that's, I think that's it he names. He doesn't really offer up anything else. But, uh, and, and he even goes as far as to say, you're brave just waking up and having to be you, which almost <laughs> sounds like a compliment, but really isn't. <laughs> it's not, but Michael does take it that way for sure. <laughs> he, he ends that little speech with, uh, you brave heart, man. And Michael just, the, the camera focuses on his face. He says, I brave heart. <laughs> and that's that's a convincing and then there was the promise that pam had a gift and it, it's funny that he believes this because it was obviously a ruse to everybody else and then dwight chimed in and said it was this robot thing and he doesn't believe dwight but he still believes pam that there's some sort of gift so after daryl calls him braveheart he says okay i'm going to come down now now pam i'm going to come open that present and she doesn't have a present but uh, i'd be curious to see what she comes up with on the commentary, uh, which we get for this episode, I believe it was BJ Novak that mentioned how parental Jim and Pam are at this moment. So obviously Karen and Jim are a couple at this time. Um, they are, you know, they are together, but they liken Michael in this moment to Jim and Pam's kid as far as they kind of have to take care of Michael. Um, and Pam... And Jim know Michael way better than Karen does. So they have always kind of teamed up. Um, and so at this moment, Jim and Pam are the, not the couple, but they are the parental figures right now. It was a bit of a far stretch, but it was an interesting uh, perspective that they team up on this, not Jim and Karen. Right. I think the the specific analogy was that they Michael was their kid from their previous marriage, and now Jim was remarried to Karen. And yeah, it, right. it is a little bit convoluted, but uh, I can see that direction. I can see how that makes sense in the moment um, and how Karen would feel left out of that because Jim and Karen don't have their own kid yet, but Pam and Jim have Michael to deal with. And so they they have to stick together no matter what to to do the right thing for him. So another way for Karen to sort of feel out of the loop as far as the whole Jim and Pam situation goes. There was another bit of a side plot going on in this episode with a bit of a betting spree. How does it start? I'm just now forgetting. Um, it's down in the warehouse when... Um, oh, how many the, people the Baylor kills. Right, per year, yeah. <laughs> which is a dark thing to bet on, but That's that right. doesn't stop them. Um. Yeah, so Kevin and Jim, I think, are the big two, but everyone in the office is kind of in on it. They're betting just on on, on stupid stuff. For instance, they bet on Kelly Kapoor's speaking habits. They um, <laughs> kind of trick her into explaining Netflix to Ryan, which is something he clearly knows about, but they're trying to place bets on how many times she will, for instance, use the word awesome or what movies she'll pick when she describes Netflix and stuff like that. Uh, they do another bit where Creed is eating a red apple. Pam goes over and distracts him. They replace his apple with a potato and they take bets on whether or not he'll notice. <laughs> and so they just have this whole list of just things that they're betting on through the day, which is a lot of fun to watch. Uh, the, the Netflix one makes me laugh now in retrospect because this was 10 years ago and Netflix was still sort of in its infancy. And that was when it was primarily a disc by mail service, which is what Kelly's describing. And I once upon a time, I used Netflix as a disc by mail service, but now it's so mm -hmm. they still offer that service, I believe, but nobody uses it. Everybody uses just the streaming service. So it's funny to see how times have changed in that way. And also during that that moment when Kelly is explaining, Ryan is so obviously not paying attention to her and just staring at his watch, but she's so oblivious to it. it it's it's their relationship is crazy. But I do kind of love, even though they seem to hate each other most of the time. At the very end, he gives her this cute little kiss on the nose, and <laughs> I just I always love that. I think it's cute. We don't see a whole lot of kindness between the two of them, but that was nice. Yeah, they're so on again, off again, but uh, th those on again moments are, are few and far between, but they're sweet most of the time. 
one of the things that they bet on is the jelly beans that are in the container on Pam's desk. And Jim wins the jelly bean bet and blames uh, Kevin blames it on Jim spending hours and hours and hours up there talking to Pam, uh, which obviously very much bothers Karen because she doesn't want to hear about all the time that Jim has spent at Pam's desk in the past. Um, but come on, Kevin, jelly beans are not constant over time. They're constantly being refilled or snacked on some more. <laughs> There's no way that there would have been, uh, what is it? 49 jelly beans the entire time that Jim has gone and talked with Cam, uh, talked with Pam, uh, a little bit too much, but it, it does draw attention to the fact that Jim did spend a lot of time at her desk. Yeah. It seems recently in the last several episodes that we've just been slowly chipping away at Karen's confidence in um, Jim's lack of interest in Pam. Several episodes ago, Jim did admit that he still had feelings for Pam. And so Karen, I guess, rightfully does have some security issues with, uh, with how much time Jim spends with Pam, but we're seeing her confidence just kind of wane unfortunately for her it's not without good reason uh we we do see those connections and we do see that there's still something apparently lingering there at least a little bit andy is back from anger management training he popped up at the end of the last episode only to get pepper sprayed by dwight uh but he's back uh normally now and he's asking everybody to call him drew because uh new name new person i guess and he comes in, he introduces himself to Pam, says, you can call me Drew now. And she says, oh, oh, okay. And then he tells Jim, no, Drew, you can call me Drew. And Jim just outright says, I'm not going to call you that. <laughs> and Andy's response is, I can't control what you do. I can only control what I do. And there's lots of those little aphorisms, if you want to call them that, all the way throughout the episode where Andy is coming up with these like spur of the moment philosophical sayings about how he can control his anger now, no matter what pops up. I always kind of imagine those as things he was fed during anger management and that he's just been so brainwashed into this anger management thing. And he's trying to remember that as he goes through his day, just Andy, it's okay. Sorry, Drew, it's okay. You can, <laughs> you know, you can't control other people, but you can control yourself. And he is just remembering these mantras as he deals with his crazy coworkers. And Dwight has decided to shun Andy, uh, I mean, which makes sense, considering their, their last interaction was Andy convincing Michael that Dwight was trying to betray him, leading to Dwight quitting. And then he punched a hole in the building, and Dwight really loves that building, so I could understand how that would upset him after the fact <laughs> as well. So uh, there's lots of unshun, reshun, unshun, reshun, accompanied by uh, a pretty amusing arm gesture by Dwight. Uh, which sort of defeats the per the point of shunning in the first place. Like, there's not supposed to be any communication. If you're shunning somebody, it should it's basically the quiet game. You're winning or you're losing. And so this whole shunning and unshunning and reshunning and all this kind of nonsense, it, it means you're not shunning him, basically. <laughs> I do love how Dwight describes shunning. He says it's basically slapping somebody with silence. It's got to be the best description of that. And then we also learned that Dwight himself was shunned from ages four to six, uh, which might explain a lot of the reasons Dwight is the way he is, um, all for not saving the excess oil from a can of tuna. So that seems like a pretty severe punishment for the crime, but hey, don't be a shrewd then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't really have life experience to <laughs> compare with that. <laughs> um. One final character moment, I suppose, for me, which also kind of falls under funny moments, is when Kelly calls Lonnie out during the uh, office safety training presentation um, on not being so small. Lonnie calls Michael a fat butt. He said, that's fat butt disease. And she says, well, you're, you're, you're the one to talk, sea monster, or something like that. And he says something about her wanting to swim with the sea monster. She goes to Ryan to defend him, or to defend her. But he's intimidated by Lonnie and says, you just insulted the man. I'd want you to apologize. And so he turns it around. Pretty bad boyfriend, uh, at least in the, the sense that she wants something else very different from him in that moment. And he just gives her the opposite. Some more funny moments I had. Um, 
when Michael is testing out the watermelons on the trampoline, he drops one from the roof and it bounces from the trampoline directly onto a car. And, you know, clearly that's not going to work. He can't jump on the trampoline. Michael asks Dwight to find out if the car is Stanley's, and if it is, to call a lawyer to see if that lawyer handles hate crimes. <laughs> because, <laughs> And then at the end of the episode, we come out and see that it is, in fact, Stanley's car, and he sees a watermelon just smashed on his car, which um, he just seems pretty shocked about. Uh, it's funny, it's the same lawyer that... Uh, Michael called way back in the beginning of season two for sexual harassment uh, before he found out that he had a corporate lawyer that covered him. So it was a nice little callback oh, to an wow. early season two episode uh, with the name of that lawyer. Yeah, I didn't catch that. Yeah, he's basically like the the Saul Goodman of the office, one of those <laughs> yeah. billboard lawyers. Yeah. Uh, I, I like when when Michael is first formulating this plan to come up with a demonstration he says, you don't go to the science museum and get handed a pamphlet on electricity. You go to the science museum and you put your hand on a metal ball and your hair sticks up straight and you know science. <laughs> I don't think you, you know science just by touching your hand to a metal ball. But uh, if that School. makes you feel better thinking that. <laughs> School would have been so much easier. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. I just know science now. <laughs> Kevin, we're learning, is quite the gambler. We know he plays poker pretty regularly, um, but he also likes to gamble, as we see in this episode. And he has a really strong belief that if anyone gives you odds of 10,001 on anything, you take it. And then he adds that if John Mellencamp ever were to win an Oscar, he'd be a very rich man. Because, <laughs> yeah, I mean, 10,001 might be right on that. I, I kind of hope John Mellencamp wins an Oscar at some point in the rest of his <laughs> lifetime, just so I can point to this episode and it could trend on uh, Twitter's. I'm sure it'd be pretty funny. It'd be sort of like a couple years ago when uh, Chili's pardoned Pam from yeah. uh, her her time being banned from the restaurant. I, I just think it'd be a funny sort of meta thing that everybody'd be able to point to and say, "Hey, the Office said something about that." <laughs> Kevin's really rich now. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I, I just want to draw attention one more time to the Dwight, you ignorant slut line, just because it's so yes. funny and so out there. And he's so committed to his script that he says it twice <laughs> because the first time the warehouse isn't out there. So he gets Dwight to go get the warehouse and then he goes through the whole routine again and says the same line and same insult again, uh, which isn't something people say to each other, by the way. But Michael really likes it and like thinks that it pays up the drama or something. I don't know. And Dwight has done nothing to be slutty. <laughs> Just, <laughs> no, not at like, all. <laughs> at all. <laughs> um, my, final, final, my final funny moment, though, is the cold open. And that's when Dwight has said that he's shunning Andy. Um, and he tries to communicate to Jim. He says, hey, Jim, tell Andy that he is being shunned. Jim says, Andy. Dwight says, welcome back. And he could use a hug. Dwight says, okay, tell him that's not true. Dwight says that he actually doesn't know one single fact about bear attacks. Andy, you guys, okay. No, Jim, tell him that bears can climb faster than they can run. Jim, tell him. Andy, no, nah, that's, nah, that's too far. <laughs> Dwight just says, damn you. <laughs> damn you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just love that little conversation where uh, Andy can clearly hear what Dwight's saying. Nothing needs to be communicated by Jim, uh, but Jim is still misinterpreting, and Dwight's getting upset about it for no reason, but Okay. <laughs> Andy's in the back smiling like, oh, you guys, he's back. <laughs> we did have some deleted scenes and commentary for this episode. So some deleted scenes. Um, Andy now owns a Toyota Prius. It looks like he bought one after anger management. And after having seen an inconvenient truth nearly twice, he says, he's now <laughs> incapable of feeling anger. So between the Prius and, you know, saving the environment and an inconvenient truth, he cannot feel anger at all. So that's magic. There's lots of Andy trying to prove that he's a different man now, that Drew is different than Andy. He, he's put out a batch of cookies from Drew. And at first, nobody really knows who Drew is. Uh, but Kelly comments on how, how is it possible that these cookies have no flavor? And I just thought to myself, isn't that an appropriate way to describe Andy as we know him so far? This person who just has no flavor, you know? <laughs> um, yeah, that's pretty good. But then Kevin takes the last of the coffee and Andy tries 
convincing him and convincing the others who are insulting his cookies that he's he's not mad and that he's incapable of anger like you said and he starts making fun of himself which really doesn't work when it means that you pretend you're going to beat up people uh and that's what he does he's like oh no watch out i'm gonna beat you up no i'm just kidding but that's like an actual threat because he punched a hole in a wall (laughs) that's not far out there for people to think of him we get a deleted scene of angela keying andy's car all the way around um, she just takes her key to his, like, pale green Prius, which, I don't know about that, um, but she, <laughs> like, starts at the driver door and just goes all the way around the back and all the way up the passenger side, um, presumably because Andy tried to get, or did get, Dwight fired, um, and of course Angela and Dwight have that relationship, so she is not Andy's fan. I'll be really curious in future episodes to see if they keep the key marks on the car or if they switch out the car or oh. something like that. But that'll be a nice detail to look out for to see if they're, they remain in continuity with their deleted scenes. That would be interesting, yeah. Um, I guess Andy could always get you know, the, the key marks fixed, but that, that would be really cool. I, I would like to see that. Mm-hmm. That would be like back to the future level attention to detail, which I'd really yeah. appreciate. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Um, yeah. Before they leave for the warehouse safety presentation at the start of the episode, this deleted scene has Pam trying to convince Michael to let her stay and answer phones. And he says, Pam, you'll be answering the phone for the rest of your life. And she's horrified, understandably, oh. because that's sort of something that she'd feared. Uh, even Jim had sort of, hit, sort of hinted towards that way back in season two, Pam. Do you, are you really going to be answering phones for the rest of your life? Do you really want to be a receptionist for the rest of your life? And no, she doesn't. Uh, she's defensive in that moment, but she doesn't want that. And so Michael sort of tries to rectify it by saying, your long, lovely life. And then he says, saved it. But I don't think that's the part that, that bothered her, was that, uh, that he didn't comment on how long her life would be. It's just that she was going to be receptionist for the rest of her life, whatever it might be. She doesn't want to consider that. I have one more deleted scene that I'm going to do my best to describe, um, but it might be a little (laughs) challenging. Dwight is helping Michael plan his trajectory from the roof onto the trampoline by using like the Mississippi counting system, which I think we all know. Um, But it's really rough and like not at all scientific. It's just him kind of BSing the path that Michael might take from the roof. And so he, yeah, like I I can't even really describe it, but it's just this totally unscientific um, guess of where Michael might land. And you can see Dwight is totally confident in his assumption and in his, you know, quote calculations. And Michael, you can see is really becoming very unsure that this is a good idea. (laughs) Yeah, I, I called it Mississippi-based math in my notes. And <laughs> yeah, I like that. The, the crazy part about it is I kind of trust that Dwight would have been exactly on course if Michael had jumped. Oh, um, I disagree. <laughs> really? <laughs> I, I do not trust I, him at all. <laughs> I, I don't know. I just thought he was so confident. I was like, what if he's right? That'd be funny. Uh, <laughs> but it, I think it'd be equally funny if he put in all this work and it ended up failing. Obviously not with Michael. <laughs> not, but Not for Michael. <laughs> <laughs> um. Lastly, for me, I suppose, is Stanley. We, we have another bet, and he has bet that Bob Vance will call Phyllis within X amount of time. And so he ends up, he ends up calling her three times within 10 minutes. And so Karen, who shares the, the little desk island with them, uh, gives him $5. And he says, you know, I, I knew my coworkers were annoying, but I never knew that I could profit from it. <laughs> and so he says, Bob Vance, just keep calling Phyllis. Keep calling. He's never been Phyllis's biggest fan, but I guess if he's making money off of her. I guess so. (laughs) So, commentary. Yes, we had BJ Novak, Mindy Kalig, and Harold Ramis, who was the director for this episode. So one of the first things that they talk about is that BJ Novak and some others, I forget who he mentions, but they had toyed with the idea that Andy was faking his successes in anger management. But both BJ and Ed Helms did want Andy to really be trying. Um, I think it 
is a good call. I think Andy struggling too much with his anger in future episodes would make him less likable. Um, and he's already, you know, a challenge as it is. Um, but I like him really, really trying to be a better person. Yeah, I think that they made a good point about how it was important for him to sort of turn a new leaf. So it wasn't the same character who had reached the fever pitch leading to him punching a hole in a wall and make him a different character, basically. He's still Andy. He, he's still singing all the time and whatnot, but he, he is turning a new leaf and isn't so quick to anger. Uh, but Harold Ramis did raise an interesting point that he said, you know, I think Andy is so insincere to others and to himself that ultimately he might not even know if he was really trying or not, uh, which I thought was an interesting point and an interesting comment on Andy's character from a basically an outsider. I think Harold Ramis had directed an episode before, uh, but largely he's more known for his Hollywood films. He wrote Ghostbusters and I think maybe even directed the second one. Uh, I'm not sure, but he's more known as a Hollywood film director. So uh, I, I just liked that. I like that outsider perspective. This is the first or one of the first episodes where Craig Robinson, who plays Daryl, joined the cast as a series regular. So that's good to, to note. We get Daryl a little bit more full time now. I like Craig Robinson as Daryl a lot. Uh, and this was a, a good intro where he gets to both sort of get in Michael's face and then talk him down from a ledge, literally. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, they originally had a joke in the episode about Dwight making his own braces out of twigs. Uh, which BJ Novak said was originally based on a friend he had who had actually removed his own braces with pliers, which I'll ignore how painful that sounds. Oh my gosh. Uh, <laughs> uh, but he thought that was a very Dwight thing to do, but then realized that Dwight would actually want braces. And so they changed the joke, uh, or they still cut it out, but they changed it to where it would have been Dwight creating his own braces. Out of twigs, which would do nothing. <laughs> yeah, probably. That's fine. <laughs> um... <laughs> They spent a lot of time on the roof for this episode, obviously, but for insurance purposes, everyone had to be harnessed down. Um, so you don't see a lot of full body shots on the roof. You see a lot of, you know, bust, like shoulders and head. So, yeah, because they were all wearing harnesses because of insurance. So that's pretty funny. Yeah, and they said that they were originally going to CG the watermelon drop, but I, I think he said maybe the 11th take, they were able to get the watermelon to successfully land on Stanley's car, which is just too perfect. I'm glad that they were able to make it work and not have to rely on CG, because I honestly don't know how that would have looked. Yeah. Not on a TV I, sitcom budget. Yeah, I feel like faking that, at, yeah, their, their budget for CGI is not huge, I'm sure, so that was probably the... I'm, Glad they were able to capture that. Um, I think the last thing for me and what totally messed with my head and for several episodes around this time is that John Krasinski was filming Leatherheads at this time, the one with George Clooney. Mm -hmm. And so John had to cut his hair for that movie. So he's wearing a hairpiece. He's wearing a wig for this episode and probably for the ones surrounding it as well. Um, which is so great to me because I feel like Jim's hair is such a big part of his character is such a personality <laughs> trait, you know, and it, I didn't recognize it at all. I didn't see that until Mindy Kaling said it in the commentary. And now that's all I can see. <laughs> see, I, I, I guess it's just the guy in me or something. I don't know, but I don't, <laughs> I don't notice the, the hair piece as much. And I probably wouldn't have ever noticed it had she not pointed it out. So uh, I that's just either. the difference but yeah it's it's a really good piece I think I mean I wouldn't have known had had she not said anything but she mentioned that it's a little bit redder than his normal hair and I was like oh my gosh and it just clicked into place and I definitely can't unsee it now <laughs> I'll have to keep an eye out on the next episodes and see if I do ever notice it but uh, I, I'm doubtful in my abilities <laughs> <laughs> Um, I have one more commentary uh, comment, and that was that it wasn't originally framed with Michael on the roof and everyone else below. They, it was originally written with everybody on the roof, and that doesn't seem the same. I don't think that would work. Uh, so credit to Harold Ramis for actually making that change and putting everybody else on the ground and putting Michael on the roof, which just makes more sense. So our discussion topic for today uh, comes from me. Just a question to you about Michael's behavior during 
well, really this whole episode, why he feels it was so important to prove a point that his life is dangerous too, that um, he can operate the machinery in the warehouse. He just seems to have so much insecurity in this episode. And I'm wondering if you have any idea, like, why? Why does he have to prove that he's dangerous? I think it ties into a little bit of his insecurities about everything else in his life. He expresses his displeasure for even his relationship with Jan, which he was so excited about for so long. Now it seems like it's not everything it was cracked up to be. And this is the first girlfriend, aside from Carol, I suppose, he's had in a long time. And he's lonely. He's uh, only recently gotten a raise, as we talked about in the last episode. Um, it's it's sort of just like a, a stagnant part of his life. Everything's just sort of milk toast, And he is looking for a little spice. He's looking for something to prove that he's not just this boring guy who goes to work and goes home and that's the end of it. Uh, so I think that might be part of it. I don't know why he specifically goes so far with it, but I, I think he's just trying to show that he's not just this guy who sits in an office all the time. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And I think it kind of like turns around and bites him because he... I think he believes he leads this, you know, pretty interesting, cool life. And then while he's trying to convince others that he does lead a cool life, he realizes himself that he doesn't, which is why it turns into that, you know, semi-depressed <laughs> moment up on the roof, because um, he's kind of convinced himself that he doesn't. Um, yeah, but you're you're right. I think it's all based in his regular insecurities and... Um, I think somehow he sees the warehouse life as more glamorous, more manly, and he just wants to prove that, I don't know, he's he's bad too. I don't know. Well, I think that, that Daryl is also to blame. He, he very clearly gets right up in Michael's face and is very confrontational there. And I'm not saying Daryl is wrong to do that. I am saying maybe he took it a little bit too far, and it did push Michael a little bit closer to the edge leading to that scene on the rooftop. So uh, I think Daryl pushed him, basically. Shall we move on to product recall? Sure. So this is episode 21 of season three. It aired on April 26th of 2007, was directed by their director of photography, Randall Einhorn, and written by Brent Forrester and Justin Spitzer. Dunder Mifflin has a crisis. A disgruntled employee at the paper mill put an obscene image involving cartoon characters on Dunder Mifflin's paper, and 500 boxes of it went out to clients. The employees spend the day in crisis management mode. Andy and Jim are dispatched to the local high school, who has sent out prom invitations on the sullied paper. Michael attempts to rectify the situation with the client and with the press, but to no avail. Does it seem like a whole lot of ending to this episode? but big crisis at least. It's funny to see Michael trying to get so far ahead of the damage control from this. Um, he, he sends Jim and Andy to a school who sent out their prom invites on the paper and he invites the press for a press conference, which that's, that's just a bad idea. They are uh, like a mid-level small paper company. Nobody cares. Nobody, nobody has any interest. If this was Staples, if this was Office Max, then maybe they would be a little bit more concerned. But ultimately, 500 boxes from a small local paper company, not that big a deal. And all that Michael did was draw attention to the company and possibly make it worse than it already is. Absolutely. I mean, do damage control with the customers that were affected and try not to let news spread. <laughs> Don't go spreading the news yourself. And Michael is convinced that, okay, so Scranton Times does it and then, you know, CNN will pick it up and then YouTube gets a hold of it. <laughs> and he's just escalating this to be some national crisis, which is just not. And if you're going to apologize, don't offer a crappy apology. He gives this this novelty coupon to one of his customers, the most important customer, because every customer is the most important customer, except in the grand scheme of things, she's not that important. But <laughs> uh, she get, he gives this coupon, and it's for six months of free paper or 25 reams, whichever comes first. Now, if you go to Dunder Mifflin for paper, you are not buying 
25 reams of paper. You are buying hundreds of reams or you're buying even thousands of reams. That's the whole point. I mean, paper goes pretty quickly when you're talking about bigger corporations. And so this coupon is ultimately worthless because they're going to get through a fraction of a single order and then they're going to have to pay full price. I think at the beginning of this episode, Michael was being fairly managerial and pretty good. I mean, Jim said, yeah, yep, my high school, um, I've got a call going out to them today. And Michael says, no, you need to be out there. Uh, I want you in person. And he's being really proactive. And, you know, he says, yeah, in fact, I want you to bring somebody. Um, Ryan offers to go with him. And Michael says, no, we actually need somebody who's made a sale. He kind of snaps at Ryan, which he's never done. Um, He does call him sweet cheeks, though. He does call him sweet cheeks. (laughs) So it's a little, you know, he can't quite be mad at him he loves him too much but um he he's really meaning business and i totally appreciate that however his managerial uh wherewithal kind of goes out the window as the episode goes on you're right his apology to this client isn't really much of anything granted i mean she's being a little difficult he's saying sorry and she's saying well i don't accept she wants him to resign she's convinced that this is all michael's fault when Really, besides Creed not doing his job, which we'll get to in a minute, I mean, (laughs) Michael really didn't, not that he didn't do anything wrong, but like, it was sort of, he, he was told that everything was going as it should have been, and he didn't know any better, so, you know, resigning might not be the best option, but this apology ends in hysterics, and people screaming, and she walks out, it's just really bad. He's to blame insofar as he's the face of the company. And that's that's pretty much right. it. I mean, right. it's definitely not his fault. Um, <laughs> I think it's funny how disinterested the guy from the Scranton Times is because uh, he's the only guy who shows up to the press conference. He's so uninterested while he's do- Michael's doing his presentation with the coupon and all that kind of stuff. But then when things start heating up and the tension rises and she demands that Michael resigns and he says, why would I do that? I'm not going to resign. It's stupid. I didn't do anything. And they start going back and forth. And um, it ends with Michael calling her the un- uh, an ungrateful biatch is the exact phrasing he uses. Um, and so as, as they're having this argument, you see in the background, all of a sudden, the Scranton Times guy has come to life and is scribbling away. So what story is going to get into the paper? Not local paper company... Um, offers apology, it's going to be local paper company insults customer or something like that. Uh, it's definitely not going to be a positive spin. And that that is Michael's fault. Absolutely, which is now two strikes because it'll be an apology for, you know, this horrible mistake. So this really all ended up in the negative for Michael. Now, you mentioned Creed. And this is his first time sort of in the forefront of an episode, which is funny. Uh, And we find out his job title. He is Quality Assurance, which might have been mentioned once, but it had also been mentioned once or twice that we didn't know what his job was. I think it was uh, Bring Your Daughter to Work Day when Michael goes. Yeah. When Michael goes up to Creed's desk with the kids and says, uh, Creed does something here. And he says, yes, I do. That is true. <laughs> and it's really not hinted to it. So I think this might be the first mention of what his actual job title is. And he apparently hasn't been doing it. This is so messed up. I mean, we know Creed has history. We know he's a weird dude, but oh man. So Creed every week is supposed to visit the paper mill and do quality assurance, make sure that the paper is coming out how it should be coming out. So he hasn't done this in a year, he says. So this is his responsibility. He did not go to the paper mill. The paper is sullied. This is, you know, his fault. So he fakes it. He finds out from the paper mill who was not there last week and tells Dwight that he tried to meet with Debbie Brown, who was the missing employee. Um, They follow up with Debbie Brown. She is, she swears, you know, nobody tried to contact me. Ultimately, Debbie Brown gets fired. Um, Creed passes around, this is the worst, Creed passes around (laughs) a uh, card wishing her, you know, luck and sorry you're leaving us and has everyone throw in a couple of bucks. He then takes the money from the card and tosses the card in the trash. 
Yeah, it it's awful, to be clear. It, it's really a terrible thing that Creed has done, but it still makes me laugh because it's Creed. Oh, um, I, I feel like an awful person, but it, it, it it's funny um, insofar that it is Creed. Um, he says the only difference between him and a homeless person is this job, so he's going to do what it takes to survive. And that means being pretty cutthroat and costing somebody their livelihood. So... Uh, way to go, Creed, I guess. Ugh. Which we also learned that Creed was homeless for a time. He says, that's what right. I did when I was homeless. Um, and then there's a deleted scene, which I do want to add now because we're talking about this. Creed rebuts Debbie Brown's claim that she is, you know, not guilty. Um, and he says to Dwight that, you know what? Debbie Brown and I are, per- are close personal friends. He's never met Debbie Brown. But he says, you know, I- I- I'd hate to see her go, but Dunder Mifflin has a standard to uphold and someone needs to be held responsible and debbie brown is then fired (laughs) so he just makes up this whole story about how close they are and he just values the company so much to not let her get away with it yeah just a little bit too far he does he's so apologetic but it's obviously fake apologetic since he went through so much trouble to get this person fired rather than taking the fall himself like he should have but Oh, well, uh, <laughs> that's Creed for you, I suppose. <laughs> the accountants are sent to work in customer relations today with Kelly, since there are so many incoming calls they need to field regarding the paper. That's the incident. Um, so we have Angela, Oscar, and Kevin answering phones. Kelly is so excited to have some <laughs> more people in customer relations. She is so excited to teach them how to answer phones because... As she says, they are accountants because they're not good with people, um, <laughs> which the men seem to do okay. Oscar and Kevin are pretty good at it. Angela cannot apologize for some reason at all. Um, she is having the hardest time answering the phones and being pleasant. I think it's just connected. Well, in I think a deleted scene, she connects it to uh, morality saying it wouldn't be right for me to take the blame when it wasn't my fault. Right. And so that that's really not the stance you should take when you're apologizing on behalf of a company. Obviously, you're not personally apologizing. You just have to say, I'm sorry, rather than the company's official stance is apologetic, so I don't know what more we want from me. That, that's not how it works. You are doing damage control, <laughs> and you are having to be genuinely apologetic if you want to keep your customers that's what it boils down to which i get it as someone who has worked in customer service sometimes you just want to be like it's not my fault (laughs) please don't yell at me but you know that's not what you got to do and angela refuses to apologize um and she's just so surly and bitter the whole day andy and jim as stated go to the high school and andy has apparently been dating a high schooler uh apparently the fact that he went out busting a mailbox with her and her friends wasn't enough of a clue um i mean i do that with my adult friends all the time so (laughs) yeah yeah he doesn't know uh to be clear that this girl is a high school student until they arrive at the high school and see her opening a locker andy is convinced that no she's got to be a tutor or a counselor or something and jim his face is just melting. Like, he is so <laughs> completely in shock. The worst part about it is, if, if Andy had just let it go and said, okay, well, it looks like I'm not talking to her anymore, that'd be one thing. But he doesn't do that. He's upset by the fact that she lied to him. And he says, who do you think that guy was that she was talking to at her locker? Jim says, you know, it doesn't matter because you're not dating her because she's in high school. <laughs> and he, he, they, they meet up with the principal And he's still showing there that he's upset. He says that the principal's not teaching moral values the way that they should because uh, one of their students is uh, a bad word. (laughs) Uh, He is so upset by this. And Jim is just like, come on, man, you have to let it go because this is a high schooler. It is illegal for you to do anything with her as far as romantic situation goes. It is so incredibly cringy, as we love to say. Um, And there are a number of deleted scenes as well, just about his interactions and trying to get this girl back and, oh, just walk away. Just go. (laughs) Uh, But at the end of it all, 
uh, despite being annoyed by Andy, on the way back to Dunder Mifflin, Jim makes Andy feel a little bit better by singing the background of The Lion Sleeps Tonight in the car. And uh, Andy tries to resist, but you know Andy can't resist. And he eventually joins in singing along with Jim for a brief moment. And they have that special moment of friendship where Jim is comforting him at least a little bit. Which is big for Jim because on the way to the high school, um, I had this in funny moments, but I'm skipping around, so I might as well. (laughs) Um, Jim and Andy are sharing this just awkward car ride to the school, so Jim asks if Andy has any music. Andy says, oh, you should have said so. And he starts scatting and singing Drift Away. And um, (laughs) not the kind of music Jim had in mind. He meant more something along the lines of a CD or a CD. (laughs) No other options. (laughs) While while Andy was singing, Jim is just sort of staring like, are you being serious right now? Do you really (laughs) think this is what I meant? (laughs) As far as other funny moments go, Michael starts off the episode saying, everybody in here, stat, no time to lose, crime and squat, FNC double time. And then he has to take the time breaking down everything he said because nobody knows what he's saying. This isn't like common lingo. Uh, He says, Crime Man Squad is Crisis Management Squad, FNC, front and center, double time, twice as fast as you would normally go, which I don't think is the part that people were confused by, but he breaks it down anyways. And he said, you know, why, why would I talk this way? To save time. But then everybody asked what everything meant, and they start to ramble on about how it doesn't save time. Obviously, it doesn't. And Michael just said, okay, forget it. Move on, move on. <laughs> but it's just a funny moment where he's, he's in the zone, and then it's just sort of torn apart by everybody else. I love Pam's face in that moment where she's so obviously just trying to take up more time. And it's just, well, by the time you got to the end of that, you know, it took so much longer. And she kind of looks over at her coworkers and smiles like she's just just messing with them. Uh, I adore this cold open. So this is the one where Jim impersonates Dwight. He walks into the office in the morning and he is dressed in a mustard yellow shirt, a yellow tie. He has the Dwight glasses. His hair is parted down the middle. Um, the, he's down to the calculator watch. I mean, he is completely decked out in Dwight paraphernalia. And the best part is, is that Dwight doesn't realize what Jim's doing until well into their conversation. I think this is the quintessential office cold open really yeah. like i think even people it. who aren't yeah people who don't know the show who haven't watched the show i think they know this scene just because the whole bears beats Battlestar galactica that is so classic office it is this is the cold open that people know um so i'm glad we finally reached it <laughs> do you think um, bears beats Battlestar galactica is after that's what she said the most quoted line i think it might be I think so too. Um, yeah, that's what she said. Definitely became sort of a cultural phenomenon for a little while. Uh, but the Bears Beats Battlestar Galactica is right up there along with it. Uh, it I just love that Dwight doesn't pick up on it until Jim pulls out the bobblehead. <laughs> like they're having a conversation and Jim says, which bear is best? Obviously black bear. And Dwight says, well, there's two schools of thought. And then Jim brings out the bobblehead. And that's when he says, what is going on? identity theft is not a joke Jim millions of families suffer every year (laughs) and then of course at the end of the episode Dwight tries to prank Jim back by dressing up as Jim (laughs) and everyone just calls him so handsome and wow you look great Dwight and he's just looking at the camera making all these funny faces and like trying to hit on Karen and just everyone's talking about what an upgrade Dwight has made because he looks so great (laughs) Yeah, it sort of turns against him. He didn't expect to be complimented by everybody. He jokes about having sexual intercourse with Karen because he's Jim and she's his girlfriend. And the the funny faces he makes at the camera, he says, little comment. <laughs> he's just <laughs> doing all these little things. Uh, that That is just as good, in my opinion. It's just not the one that sticks in everybody's memory. Right, yeah. Um, but Andy also has this little uh, beer me slogan that he introduces in this episode um him and jim are driving on the way to the school and he says hey jim beer me uh what he means is give me that water bottle he says that gets a laugh about a quarter of the time and then uh later beer me that cd because jim wants a cd not andy to ridiculously sing dobie gray in acapella and then uh when they get to the school 
Jim steps out of the car and says, Lord, beer me strength. And that's the payoff for me <laughs> is when Jim says that uh, to the camera. It's a little moment, but it makes me laugh every time I watch. When Kelly is teaching the accountants how to answer phones, um, <laughs> she gives them the welcome to, or thanks for calling Dunder Mifflin. This is Kelly or whatever. And then when clarifying that they should say their own names, not her name. So she has a little phone. I'm doing it. Of course, we're not on video, so that doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, the little phone you make with your hand. When she's talking to them, she covers up the microphone with her other hand so that the imaginary customer won't hear her explaining. Just, it's stupid, but it makes me laugh every time. Yeah, Kelly gets her moments in this episode. She starts with the whole, this day is bananas, B, <laughs> over and over again. And uh, then it cuts immediately to Angela's talking head where she's just dumping uh, like aspirin in her hand. She says, I don't have a headache. I'm just preparing <laughs> because she's going to be interacting with Kelly. Uh, it, it's a funny interaction between the two of them throughout the episode. One last one for me, I think Michael is asking Dwight to make the office look nice for the press conference they're having. So Dwight puts Karen, Ryan, and Pam at the front and asks Pam to run a comb through her hair um, and puts a giant plant, like a ficus, in front of Phyllis to, um, <laughs> as he says, like, put the money beats up front and, you know, hide the, the less desirable beats. So he's rearranging a little bit. I can't ever think of a time when I drove by like a beet stand on the side of the highway and saw appetizing beets and felt the need to stop. Yeah. Uh, his logic is sound, but not when it comes to beets, I don't think. Not so much. Uh, plus, super insulting. Like, yeah, it, a it plant, is for sure. like nearly in Phyllis's lap. And she's sort of just peeking around it, trying to see what else is going on in the office. <laughs> So we got a couple of deleted scenes. I know I mentioned a couple of them already, but um, speaking of Kelly and customer service, Ryan, of course, is in the annex with Kelly. Um, their desks are next to each other. And there's this one, well, it's, it's sort of a two-part deleted scene. We see Kelly on the phone with a customer and she says, customer service, this is Kelly. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. That is so messed up. Everyone here is so upset. You have no idea. I'll be thinking about you all day. <laughs> And that's word for word. And then she says it again to the next customer. And then the second part of this deleted scene is Ryan. All he says is that same little monologue over and over and over. And the camera just pans closer and closer to his face. And he's got crazy eyes and his hair is disheveled. And apparently <laughs> Kelly has just been using the same bit on every single customer who's called. And he is losing it. I think that's so funny, uh, the way he's just like endlessly repeating it into the camera, like, please get it out of my head. <laughs> <laughs> um, the guy from the Scranton Times recognizes Screed as the guitar player for the grassroots from the 1960s. And he's like, oh, you're a fan. He said, no, I wrote your obituary 10 years ago. <laughs> and so it turns out that Creed faked his own death 10 years ago and has been collecting benefits as his widow ever since. So another fun fact about Creed. He doesn't technically exist. <laughs> <laughs> As I mentioned a bit earlier, there's uh, a few deleted scenes of Andy trying to, you know, talk to Jamie, who's the high school student, um, and just being upset with her. And Jim is trying to kind of put the, quote, relationship in more, uh, less incriminating terms because he's very <laughs> mindful of the fact that they are being videotaped. But Andy just keeps incriminating himself and Jim just, okay, there's nothing I can do for you at this point and just kind of gives up. Yeah. And that specific deleted scene, I do want to outline because uh, Andy talks about how him and Jamie met. They were at a gas station or something and he was shaking crumbs out of his shirt, I think he said. And he bought her and her friends wine coolers. So incriminating number one and scratch tickets, incriminating number two, uh, because he's generous. And then he made out with her in the woods, incriminating number three. <laughs> and Jim, it's to that one where he says, allegedly made out with her. And he says, no, we were actually making out. And he says, okay, I can't help you anymore. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, there's lots of that material in the deleted scenes. Uh, I have one more to mention. There's like 12 minutes of deleted scenes. So there's a lot you should just go watch. Um, but 
Kevin says, you know, how would we get more cartoon characters? How would we get new ones if they didn't have sex with each other and birth new cartoon characters? <laughs> Which I don't think is that what works. <laughs> that's like a Who Framed Roger Rabbit situation. Right. Um, but it, it, that's, that's not how we create new cartoons, Kevin. Closing off, we have our discussion topic for this episode. And I just wanted to ask you, Katie, have you ever accidentally dated a high schooler? Well, it's funny that you... I'm just kidding. No, <laughs> I have not. <laughs> Same. Well, okay. I, I would not have a job if I to did. To be fair, I did intentionally date a high schooler, but I was in high school, so that's fair. Oh, yeah, right? that, yeah. <laughs> that's fair. <laughs> that's okay. Uh, <laughs> that brings us to the end of our official 26th episode of An American Workplace. You can contact us at facebook.com slash workplacepod or at workplacepod on Twitter. If you would like to rate, review, and subscribe, you can do so on iTunes. We would really, really appreciate any feedback you might have. If you would like to email feedback, you can do so at workplacepod at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at ktlady623 or at facebook.com slash katie.white. And the best place to find me is at chadadada on Twitter. That is C-H-A-D-A-D-A-D-A. Also, facebook.com slash chad.hopkins. And then on my other show, Cinescope, where we talk about the movies we love and why we love them. You can find that where podcasts can be found or at thecinescopepodcast.com. Show notes and all contact information for the show can be found at workplacepodcast.com. That's all for this week. Thank you so much for joining us to watch one of our favorite shows, The Office, here on episode 26 of An American Workplace. Make sure to join us in episode 27 for our discussion on the next two episodes of season three, Women's Appreciation and Beach Games. Bye. Yeah, on that note, that brings us to the end of our official 16th episode of An American Workplace. 16th? I think we've nope, got a little bit 26. farther than that. That's, that's yep, 26. Uh, we've got our blooper for the end of the episode. Yep, perfect. <laughs>